0: That's the only screen you're going to see today. There's no slides, um, mainly because I didn't get a chance to do it. That's all right. Um, We're going to Philippians this morning, uh, if you would, Philippians 3. Another apology. That's not the title (laughs) in the bulletin. And this is... uh, a moment of humility for me and as we're going we're going to see we're going to get to this in a minute but i want you to know that the person that stands up here delivers the message he delivers to himself first before he delivers it to you so friday evening my wife left the house and took our boys to my parents i sat in front of my computer screen for 2 hours and when i Started, it was blank. And two hours later, it was blank. And I'm like, this is not working. <laughs> like, it's Friday night, I'm supposed to preach Sunday. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know what? Paul says that we're the circumcision and we put no confidence in our flesh. And I it dawned on me, I'm sitting here thinking, what am I going to say on Sunday? Sitting at my computer screen, trying to get out of myself words to bring to you this morning, and I realized I haven't spent any time in prayer over this. How in the world am I supposed to deliver the word of God if I don't first consult with God on what he once shared? So I went upstairs and prayed through this passage and asked the Lord to forgive me for trying to do this on my own. But I hope as we see this this morning, I put this together this hour, yesterday afternoon, and if you can sense the theme that's here this morning, this is all about Jesus. You know, we started with all glory be to Christ. We're going to end with all glory to be to Christ. And I hope if the Lord works through me, you can see that who you are, where you are, depends nothing on you. It is all about Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to look into your word this morning, and as I've shared that I tried to do this on my own Friday night, Father, I just pray that you would speak through me now what I am committing these words on these pages to you. And I am praying that as... Your spirit speaks through me that all the glory would be given to Christ and to Christ alone. But as we look over 2018 and as we stand here at the dawn of a new year that we see the trials, we see the struggles that we've come through and we look ahead and we just hope and pray that, Lord, is this going to get any better? Father, I pray that our confidence is rooted 100% solely in you. That I can't work hard enough to become who you are making me. So I ask now that you would send your Spirit, Father. I believe He's here already, as we've worshipped you this morning. I believe that He would. I pray that He would continue continue to minister to us, have the hearts, the ears of our hearts opened, so that we can hear from you this morning. Amen. Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble, and to me it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection. From the dead. Nowhere else in Philippians will you pull this, but there were apparently Judaizers in the church at Philippi. And if you remember back to Acts 16, this was the first church that Paul planted. So these, this church has a special place in his heart. Uh, this was Lydia. This was the girl that was possessed by the demon that Paul freed. And this was the Philippian jailer. That was the core of his church when he started this in Acts 16. And if you see there at the beginning in verses uh, three, he said, or in verses two, in verse two he's talking about dogs. He's talking about evildoers. He's talking about people that mutilate the flesh. And what he's addressing are these Judaizers, these people that think that in order to be in Christ, you actually need to add to Christ to the law. Um, mainly circumcision, but they placed a lot of emphasis on the rest of the law as well. And I think it's ironic that Paul calls them dogs and evildoers. And I say that it's ironic because dog in that time was actually a derogatory term that was used from the Jews towards the Gentiles. And Paul basically says, no, you've got it backwards. You guys are the ones that are wrong. You're the ones that are the dogs. He calls them evildoers. Those who mutilate the flesh, they're, they're trumpeting their law, they're trumpeting their circumcision, and they're basing their righteousness on that. Now, they might have said that they were Christians, that they believed in Christ, but that Christ wasn't sufficient is what they were saying, that you needed more than Christ. He was a good righteousness, but he's not enough. You need to do the rest of this. Paul's telling the church in Philippians, and I think he's telling us as well, you need to watch out for these people because they're evil. He tells the church that we're the circumcision, those who worship by the flesh, or the, worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So to start out, we're going to look at these three things. The first one is worship by the Spirit. I believe Paul or yeah, Paul goes back to John 4 in this, in this um, passage where he mentions this. He's talking in John 4 to the uh, Samaritan woman at the well, and he says, you who wor- you worship that you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is speaking, such pe- seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. At that point in time, if you look earlier in the passage, the woman at the well, she says that her her ancestors worship on the mountain that she was at, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the of the mountain, but they believed that they had a temple set up on the mountain where they were, but the Jews had to go to Jerusalem to worship. So your worship of God was based on where you were. You had to go to Jerusalem to worship. You had to go to the temple because that's where the Spirit of God dwelt. Jesus says, no, the time is coming, and it's here now. You're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And I was trying to make a correlation, how do I express this? And I have a resource that I used, Desiring God, John Piper out of Minneapolis. He writes stuff. And he has a book called Desiring God. And this is how he sums up worshiping in spirit and in truth. This is from the book Desiring God. Worship will be vital and real in the heart. And worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Sound affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. And I think it's interesting how the Lord works. We're getting ready downstairs to start a series on sound theology. Jesus is saying, and Paul is saying, your worship of God stems from what you know of God. If you have an inaccurate view of the God that you serve, your worship will not be true worship. Because what are you worshiping? You'll be worshiping the God that you've conceived of in your head. And Jesus says he doesn't want people that worship God as you want him. Jesus and Paul say we are the circumcision. We worship the God who is because we know who he is. But I want to clarify something here. When Piper says deeply emotional, I don't want you to think that you're not accurately worshiping if you're not moved to tears and thrown to the floor and bouncing around all the time. I don't think that's what John Piper saying. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is saying right worship will come from your heart. You may be moved to tears. I've been moved to tears in worship. I've been not moved to tears in worship. I've danced. Maybe not danced. Probably not danced. I haven't danced. <laughs> Some have danced. I haven't. Um, but it's not, a requ- it's not a prerequisite. It's not if you're not dancing in the aisle way. If you're not running around here with the kids when they pound their trampoline and, or their tambourine and they wave those things. If if you're not doing that, that, doesn't mean you're not worshiping. It's not the outward expression. It's what's in your heart. And if you have an accurate picture of the God that we serve, and I believe that we do, and if we don't, I believe that we will, we'll worship in spirit and in truth. So I'm I'm fearful to give a descriptive, this is what true worship looks like, because other than it coming from a right understanding of who God is, I don't think there is a right outward working of worship. So the next point Paul makes is the people of God, they glory in Christ Jesus. Are you able to say that you glory in Christ Jesus this morning? This Greek word that Paul uses for glory is pronounced ka- how am I? and it literally translates to boast. It means to display or proclaim publicly a satisfied contentment with one's own or another's achievement. And obviously where Paul uses this verb, he's not talking about you and I boasting in our achievements. Because he says we're glorying in Christ Jesus. If you were here Christmas Eve morning, when I stood up here to pray, I made several comments about how we view Christ. What do we glory in? in Christ. Are we glorying in Christ because of the things, the blessings that we get? That's the point that I was trying to make on Sunday, or that that Sunday. Is that how we see Christ? Is that the accomplishments that we get from Christ? The blessings that we have living in our softened western, Americanized church? Thankful for the nice buildings, for the heat that we have. Not saying there's anything wrong with that. But is that what we glory in? Or are the accomplishments that we glory in the accomplishments that will never pass away? The accomplishments that God got us on the cross, namely in our righteousness, that we can't do anything to earn? Or how about in the fact that He is in the process of sanctifying you? that he is in the process of turning you into the image of him. Are they the accomplishments that we glory in? Because if not, if we're, a, if we're glorying in the blessings that Christ gives us, if we are glorying in the physical health and our physical wealth because we have it from Christ, that's not a gospel that you can take into places like North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan. You can't take that gospel. Jesus Christ, glory in Christ, because he's going to give you everything your heart's ever desired. Which is true in one sense. You can go to those places, by, however. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can go to them and say that there is a God in heaven that loves them based solely on who he is and not on who they are. That he loves them so much that in order to demonstrate it, he sent his son into the world to live a life that they can't live, to die a death that they should die, and to be raised to new life on the third day. Then if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. See, that's a gospel that you can take anywhere because what you are glorying in is Christ and his work on the cross for you and for them. Those nations, by the way, are the first, number one through five, on Open Door USA's most dangerous cities for Christians. And if you take our soft westernized church, you take our prosperity gospel to them, they're going to laugh at you. So glory in Christ this morning. Glory in the accomplishments that he has achieved for you that you could never achieve for yourself. Third marker that Paul places on the true church is no confidence in the flesh. This is what I said earlier, and I think it's a logical conclusion conclusion from the last point that Paul makes, that if you're glorying in Christ, you're not going to put any confidence in your flesh because you're going to understand and recognize who you are. But I want to show you what Paul does here because I think it's kind of interesting. In verse 4, hang on, let me back up. If you're going to boast in the achievements of Christ, which are the justification, sanctification, and our eventual glorification, why would we need to put any confidence in ourselves to say that we can add to that gospel? What are we going to add to Christ that he's already done? But I want to show you now back to where I was. I want to show you what Paul says here in verse 4, and I think it's interesting. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I think Paul is in an attempt here to appease these Judaizers. And the reason I say that is, is the comment that Paul makes is, well, we don't put any confidence in the flesh, could very easily be taken as, well, I don't measure up to you, so I'm not going to even try. But Paul's saying, no, you're a good Jew. I'm a better Jew. Like, you think you're good at keeping your law? I've kept it better. <laughs> like, and I always thought, like, you know, this, like, Paul's kind of arrogant here, right? Like, you think I'm better than you are. But I think it, Paul dem- has to do this to demonstrate what he's saying. That his not glorying or his not putting confidence in his flesh is not a cop-out on his part. He says, not only do I meet your credentials, I'm better than you in your credentials. He says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. See, Paul knew where he came from and who he was. He was an Israelite, so he's one of God's chosen people. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which some scholars believe that even that he was of, because he was of Jewish descent, even though he came from the Greek-speaking land of Tarsus, that he was spoken Aramaic, Aramaic, Aramaic. He was a Pharisee. So, like I said earlier, not only did he keep the law, he kept it better than they did. They would have had the most strict adherences to the law, and which is why he says that he has righteousness under the law, because he was blameless under the law. He also, being a Pharisee, would have had religious and political authority and influence, which is power and prestige. He says zeal here that he's a persecutor of the church and. I thought one thing was interesting. Paul's persecution of the church in Acts before he is converted, some people would have believed, and some of the scholars that I I read believe that he would have felt himself to be on the level of Phineas in the Old Testament, in Numbers. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I have, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his defendants after him to the covenant of perpetual priesthood. Because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. In persecuting the church, Paul thinks that he is protecting God and the Israelites. And he sees himself as Phineas in this. Now, he doesn't see himself now in this, but he is saying that that's where he's at before Christ and again this is all in an attempt to show these Judaizers that I'm better than you in what you're saying and I'm saying that what you're saying is rubbish it's just what he says later or even Elijah I've been jealous for the sake of the Lord the God of hosts for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I even I only am left Elijah's only one in Israel still on God's side and that's how Paul saw himself as a persecutor of the church. at least that's what some of these scholars are saying. Whether or not Paul actually felt that, I can't say. but that's what his zeal in persecuting the church would have been like. Paul would have said that before, yeah, Paul would have said that before he met Christ in his persecution of the church, he was protecting the true religion, that of Judaism. But Paul says all of it. He counts his loss worth absolutely nothing, not only for the sake of Christ, but because he sees knowing Christ, having a relationship with Christ, that he can gain Christ and be found in Christ as so much more than anything he ever had. Any of the power, any of the clout, any of the whatever he had from being a Pharisee and a religious zealot, he says it's nothing, it's worthless. Indeed, I count everything as loss. This is verse eight. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. I want you to go home, write this passage down, Second Corinthians eleven, sixteen through thirty-three. Take a look at what Paul suffered. I'm not going to focus on that this morning, but I want you to take a look at the sufferings that Paul says that he has, that he goes through in 2 Corinthians there. And what I believe Paul is saying is he would not give up Christ to not have to suffer any of that. I know that's what Paul's saying. But not only that, he's saying that the righteousness that I had on myself, that I had because of what I did, is worthless in God's kingdom. Still is. I want to do something here this morning. I want to look at Paul's gain and loss kind of like an accountant because I think it puts in our minds, if you can think with me, it, it puts an illustration in our minds to help us understand what happens when we rely on our own righteousness apart from Christ or even in Christ. So what I want you to do is, in your mind, at the top of a blank page of paper, put righteousness. And I want you to draw a line right down the middle. And on the one side, I want you to put gain, and on the other side, I want you to put loss. So if you're thinking like an accountant, righteousness is your bank account. Gain is the money in. Loss is the money out. But we're not dealing in financial terms here. We're dealing in righteousness. So righteousness is anything that you view as righteousness as your gain. And anything you view as taking away from your righteousness is loss. And in your gain column, before Christ, or even if you're in Christ and you're thinking you can bring anything to this, I want you to put a list of things I'm going to read to you, but what I'm going to take is I'm going to take Paul's list and I'm going to bring them into our 21st century culture, hopefully. So in your gain column, I want you to per- put circumcision or outward appearance. People's perception of us. Before I do this, I want to clarify. I'm going to flip this so I don't think this is what I believe, Okay. I'm going to flip this at the end to show you what happens if we do this, if we believe this way. This is an illustration. I don't believe that we can bring anything to our righteousness. I don't believe any of these are gains to our righteousness. But I need to do this so I can show you what happens to Christ if we live like this. So also in your gain, I want you to put people of Israel, which could be our ethnic background, Maybe we think today that we're better off because we're Americans. (coughs) Or if you're not Americans, you're, you're better off because of the country of your heritage where you came from. You know, this was Hitler's problem. He felt he was better based on the Bible than the Jews. Tribe of Benjamin, how about your family background? Are you standing on the Christian heritage that you've been raised in? Do you boast in that? Well, I've gone to church all my life. Good for you. It means nothing. I have Christian parents. I'm glad Christ blessed you with that. It means nothing. How about a Hebrew of Hebrews? This might get me in trouble. How about your church denomination? How much weight do you put on the Brethren in Christ Church? Or if you're not from the background of Brethren in Christ Church, how much weight do you put on wherever you came from? Mennonite, Church of the Brethren, Lutheran, Baptist, I don't know. Fill in the blank. How do you see that? Makes no difference. Doesn't do you a bit of good. Pharisee, occupation, your job, what you do. Are you good at your job? Paul's good at his job. How about zeal? How involved you are? How busy you are? How much you do for the church? How much you do for the community? Now remember, we're still in the gain column now. Righteousness under the law. How good of a Christian are you? Do you read your Bible every morning? I hope you do. Do you pray? I hope so. But in and of themselves, if that's what you're relying on, it means nothing. Now before his, conver- before his conversion, I think Paul would have seen Christ as a loss. Now hear me out on this. Paul is a Jew. He's looking for a Messiah. He's looking for somebody from the line of David to come and rescue Israel from Roman rule. He's not looking for a suffering servant. He's not looking for a Messiah that is going to come, be mocked, hung on a tree, which was a shame in that culture, and die. That's not what Paul's looking for. Now, this is an inference that I'm making on the text, so I don't know if I can back this up scripturally, so hopefully I don't get in trouble for that. But I'm thinking, looking at what Paul is saying in his gain-loss, he's now, caning, he's now counting Christ as gain. My inference is that beforehand, before he knew Christ, he saw those that believed in Christ for their righteousness as a loss. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm inferring from the text for Paul. If you see it differently, please let me know. But that is what I am inferring on the text. So if you're back in your gain-loss column with me, we have seven on the gain side and one on the loss side. Pretty good math. Make seven dollars, spend a dollar, I got six bucks. I'm pretty good. So that's where we stand right now. That's what these Paul is saying with his gain loss. That's the that's the accounting that we're losing, that we're using right now. But this is what Paul says. Look at how his accounting changes. He counts Christ as gain and everything else as loss. So if we're still in our gain loss column, we flip them. Now we don't look so good. We only have one gain and seven losses. Your financial planner's gonna tell you that's pretty bad. But Christ is or Paul's saying no. It's exactly where I want you. It's exactly where God wants you. It's exactly where I want to be. It's exactly where Paul wants to be. Paul wants to have seven losses for Christ. But I want you to notice what else happens. You have Christ in your gain column. You have all of your self-righteous acts, self-righteous beliefs, things you think you're doing well adding to Christ on the lost side. But if you can picture in your mind, plus and minus, what's happening? What are you taking away from when you bring in your own self-righteous acts? What's the one gain that we have that we're taking away from? What are we taking away from? Somebody, anybody. Christ. The self-righteous acts that you rely on for your righteousness, that you are thinking you're bringing into Christ, you're taking away from Christ. Paul says this in Galatians. Look, Galatians 5.2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be at no advantage to you. None. If you keep reading, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, this is in Galatians again, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you think by bringing your self-righteous acts into Christ that you are doing him a service, you are doing yourself a disservice, because look at what Paul says in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would have been justified by the law, that is justified by what you think you bring to Christ, you have fallen away from grace. You bringing into Christ, you thinking that you're working in Christ, you thinking that you're doing things for Christ, you on your own doing things for Christ, is taking away from Christ. So now no longer... In Galatians five, if we apply this to our accounting principle, you no longer have gain and loss, you have gospel and law. <coughs> gospel on the your right as your gain, gospel. Law as your loss. So if you're basing your righteousness, You're right standing before the God of this universe on anything other than Jesus Christ. You have fallen from grace and you are headed to hell. I'm sorry. And I hope you see that walking in or you see it walking out. Because the eternity of your soul depends on it. The law can't save you. Your works can't save you, your church can't save you. Peter says in acts four he's him and John are standing before a council because they got people mad at him for proclaiming Christ and for healing a lame guy. Something's kind of sad that you get mad at a guy for healing a guy, but whatever. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which he has become the cornerstone. And here there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is your only hope for salvation, period. Now, I've just said that the law can't save you and only Christ can, which I believe is true, but now I've got a problem. Why do I have a problem? Because I've got to deal with the law. Jesus says in Matthew five seventeen through 20, that do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass, under the, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if I stop there and I leave us with law where I've just left us, I'm the least in heaven. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Where did the Pharisees get their righteousness? From obeying the law. And we've just seen that you're obeying the law and basing that, basing your righteousness on that is taking away from Christ. But James says, well, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? For brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled without giving the things they need for the body. Well, what good is that? So faith also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Paul tells us in Colossians that we're supposed to put to death what is earthly among us, sexual immorality and purity. We're supposed to put on our new self. So how do we reconcile all of this? If I've got gospel on one side and law on the other, and I'm saying, well, you don't need the law, but Christ is saying, you, how do I work this out? The song that we're going to close with is in Christ alone, and I'm not done yet, or not in Christ alone. Glory be to Christ. I want you to see this. You need to see this. I hope you see this. I see this. The law doesn't go anywhere. That's what Jesus says. He's the fulfillment of the law that you and I can't keep. I think the way that we reconcile this is in a very small phrase that Paul uses. Verse 9. Paul wants to be, this is back in Philippians 3. Paul wants to be found in him, in Christ. Christ. So you can't separate the person of Christ from the works of Christ. God's not up in heaven saying, "Okay, look, I've sent you my son. He's died for you. Now I want you to go do all of this. I want you to do this now. Christ has died for you now. This is what you need to do. That's not what God is saying is saying. God hasn't left us to our own devices, and I think this is why it's so important that we say that we are found in Christ, that we believe that we are in Christ. Paul says in Philippians two twelve through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, I got a problem. If I stop there, if you stop reading there, Paul says, Work out your salvation. Okay, how am I supposed to do that? He says, You can't. (laughs) It is God who works in you, both to will, he's working in you to will, means you want to do these things. to work but notice what we're willing and working for we're willing and working for his good pleasure so basically what what God is saying is and and what Christ says and what Paul is saying is when you're found in Christ this isn't a bunch of rules to be kept this is a promise he's going to do this in you he's going to work this out When he says put off all earthly things, he's not expecting you to be able to do it yourself. He already knows you can't. That's why he came. Everything, everything in the Christian life is utterly dependent on the works of Jesus Christ. And that is by design. Worship team's going to come forward. They're going to lead us in a closing song. song. But while they do, I want to read a quote that I have from Jonathan Edwards. I had just said that you are utterly dependent upon Christ to work out your salvation. You are utterly dependent upon Christ. And I said that it's by design. And I want you to see what Jonathan Edwards says and why he says that that brings ultimate glory to God. I am beginning to love these old pastors, these old thinkers. Jonathan Edwards comes out of the seventeen hundreds. Jonathan Edwards in July, on July eighth, seventeen thirty one, in a sermon titled "God is glorified in man's dependence," says this: "It is in Christ and by Christ that we have righteousness. It is in it is by being in Him that we are justified." We have our sins pardoned and are received as righteous into God's favor. It is by Christ that we have sanctification. We have in him true excellency of heart as well as an understanding, and he has made unto us inherent as well as imputed righteousness. It is by Christ that we have redemption, or the actual deliverance from all misery, and the bestowment of all happiness and glory. Thus have all of our good by Christ who is God. This is the doctrinal conclusion that Edwards came to from that. God is glorified in the work of redemption in this. That there appears it that there appears in it so absolute and universal a dependence of the redeemed on him. It's 2018. A new year. Time to make New Year's resolutions for people that make New Year's resolutions. I don't make New Year's resolutions. I found I can't keep them, so I don't make them. I'm going to make one resolution for myself. I'm going to make one resolution for us as a church. I pray that in 2018, we as individuals and as a body would be found in Christ. Knowing that we do nothing apart from him. Don't put confidence in yourself. We were downstairs and, and, and I heard someone share about, I, I keep falling, I keep having trouble, I, I get over this and it comes back. And we agreed with, with this person. We said, Yeah, that's the Christian life. We, we can't do this on our own. And when we do, we fall and we fail. Put your confidence in Christ for 2018. He has redeemed you. He is sanctifying you. And at his return, he will glorify you.